Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the, the church, for your stewardship over your people. And, Father, thank you that uh, we were able to meet and worship you last week as every week and again now. It uh, reminds us, Father, that the church is not ours. It is yours. The, the church is built and grown by Christ. And as such, he is able to do all that he wishes with anyone who may be available. And he is always at work in that way. But today, Father, we are thankful we are a part of that plan. We're here to serve one way or another and to hear and to learn. Thank you, Father, that you've assembled just those you would wish to have here this morning. And now, Father, before us is your word. And in it, Father, is the wisdom of God. May it be a wisdom that you plan in our hearts as we study it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began chapter 2, and as we looked at the first part of that chapter up through about verse 15, we saw God at work retelling what he's been doing in day 6 of the creation. So chapter 1 was days 1 through 6, but chapter 2 mostly deals with day 6 in detail, the creating of man and woman, in other words. We left off watching as Adam had already been created and there was a garden set up. We found God putting Adam in the garden and then assigning him the work of serving God by tending the garden. And if you remember, we said the world's oldest profession it was gardening. And it is not just Adam's responsibility to serve God. We learned that man's, mankind's original purpose in our existence was to serve a living God. That was what Adam was given the privilege, the blessing to do. And now us as well, once we come to faith, because of course without faith it is impossible to please God. We are not serving anyone but ourselves unless and until we come to faith in the gospel. But having come to faith, we now return to the place Adam once was, at least spiritually, in a relationship with God. And by that relationship, we now again resume the mission that Adam was given to serve God. Not in the garden, because we don't exist in that situation, but in our own walk. No matter what our station in life, no matter how God has set us up in life, we take what we are given by God and we seek to serve God, just as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, 7 and 8, Paul says, with good will, Render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. I love the way he ends that, whether slave or free. In our day, the words would be different. Whether you're a rich, powerful, happy person or whether your life seems to be down in the ditches, whichever one you are today, serve God, not men, and do it in goodwill from wherever God has assigned you. So now, having been assigned those responsibilities, Adam receives new instructions. And that's where we pick up today. He's in the garden, he's got a job, and then he gets some instructions in concert or in connection with that job. Verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God says, the garden is filled with trees that provide Adam with food. But there is one tree in the garden that has edible fruit, but yet it is off limits. 
Now, these two verses are central to the rest of the Bible. And they are so important, in fact, that they will take all of our time today. And I give you that warning up front so that you're not wondering, when is he going to move on? But I think you'll agree once today is over that there is a great deal more to consider in these two verses than we may have had opportunity to consider before. There is a tree and it is off limits. Adam may not eat from this tree. And the name of this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that name mean? Well, first, notice it is the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge. It is not the tree of good and evil. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is more than likely just like any other ordinary tree in the garden. This tree does not have a glowing neon sign above it that says, do not eat, do not eat. It is not brighter than any other tree. It is not ugly and dark and evil looking like something out of Walt Disney. It is just a tree. And I would argue that had it not been designated in this unique way, you would never have known anything different about it. It would not have looked any different. It would not have struck you as anything different. What made it different was God's word concerning this tree. The tree itself does not possess good nor evil in its leaves or in its branches. It is not the tree, but the knowledge of those things which is at issue here. So then the question changes. What does it mean to know good and evil? What is it about this tree as God has designated it? that would lead men to know good and evil. Well, first, let's acknowledge something that is true with regard to good and evil generally. And that is, you cannot know one but by knowing the other. That the contrast is how you know them. If you lived in a world where there was only good, and oh, would we love to be in that situation, right? And one day we will. If we were to live in a world that was only good, you could not know what evil was. Conversely, if all was evil, you would not know what good truly was. One is defined by the other in the same way that light defines darkness. If you lived in a world in which there was no shadow, no absence of light, and I came along and I said to you, watch out for the dark, the word would have no meaning. It would be babbling. It would be a nonsense word because the concept in your brain doesn't exist. So there's nothing to pair it to, to connect it to. Similarly, you have at this moment in the garden, man, Adam, created in the way God wanted him created, according to God's desire and wishes, with therefore no evil in him, all good, all innocent. And as a result, you have a man who cannot understand evil in his current form. In his present form, he is innocent to the concept of evil. He is ignorant of it. So if you were to describe to him what evil is, or if you were to try to explain to him the concept of, of evil, it's a nonsense word. It means nothing to him. And so God now has stated, for, their, for Adam's sake, and this will obviously still be true for woman when she comes along, that this tree, by its very designation in God's word, is the means to something they do not yet have. It becomes the method, the means, the knowledge of something that they currently do not have. Now, they were given this commandment. I say they because, as you know, women will come along here in a little while, and they both share this commandment. They've been given this commandment, which explains this. The commandment is that they have an option to know evil if they choose, but they are prohibited from that choice. By his word, 
God forbids this behavior, the eating from the tree. By their disobedience to that instruction, they can come to know evil if they choose to disobey God's word. It wasn't the tree that provides them with this knowledge. It's not in the fruit, so to speak. It would be their own disobedience to God's word that would lead them to an experience that would allow them to know what evil is. Do you see how that connects? This possibility was a part of a covenant. There is a covenant in Scripture being established in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of Genesis in two parts over those two chapters. It's a covenant made between God and Adam. Hosea mentions this covenant, by the way, in passing when he discusses the plight of Israel. Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Hosea says, speaking as the Lord, he says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Now he was speaking about how Israel had transgressed their covenant, but he compares it to Adam in the way Adam transgressed his covenant. Well, what was the covenant that Adam received? Well, we call it the Edenic covenant, named after the garden, of course. And like all biblical covenants, it is a binding agreement between God and man and based on God's word. The first part of the covenant we actually saw back in chapter 1, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to cover it in brief passing here. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, when God blesses Adam, that's the beginning of the covenant, and then he gives him very certain instructions. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then he's told, exercise dominion over the earth. Later we're going to see exercise dominion over the animals through the naming of the animals. That comes up later in chapter 2. These are all parts of how God is establishing a relationship with Adam through covenant. As an aside, if you ever get interested in studying covenant as a separate topic in Scripture, you will always find God establishing the relationship with men on the basis of a covenant in his word. And it will have different forms, different styles. This is just an example of one. But here you see Adam being established, a relationship being made available. The relationship has certain terms, certain expectations, certain requirements, certain promises. Now in chapter 2, the covenant gets extended. In chapter 2, he's given the instruction to keep the garden, to serve God. That's a part of the commandment, a part of the covenant. The Hebrew word for keep in the garden, when he says keep, tend the garden, that implies obey God in service. That's part of the requirement. Next, we get to the point we are here this morning, where the covenant now instructs Adam that he can eat from the trees of the garden. Part of the covenant was positive. Look, Adam, look at all the things you can eat. You know, we hear the do not eat part before we remember it started with eat all this other good stuff. You've got all the trees in the garden. They're all for you. That made them for you. Remember chapter 1, day 3, we're filling the, the world with trees and plants with fruit already in the seed form, ready to eat because we knew you were coming along. Adam, we wanted this available for you. That's part of the covenant. But then God gives this one exception. You cannot eat from this one tree. Now, why put such a tree, why put such a restriction into this covenant? Why make this part available? I want you to consider that God has created man with the ability to choose sin and the opportunity to act on that choice, which is more than God himself can do. God has given man the opportunity and the ability to do something that not even God himself can do. 
God's character, his nature, is such that he cannot choose to sin, the scripture says. Even if it's available to him, God cannot sin. He is not the author of sin. He cannot go contrary to his nature. His perfection is so binding on himself that he cannot do the wrong thing, even if it's available for him as an option. The Father, therefore, we're told, is without sin. James says he is without the capacity to lie. You see, there's a difference between not wanting to do something or not choosing to do something and just flat out not being able to do something. God cannot sin, according to Scripture. But he made man in such a fashion that he was able to. And then by putting the tree in the center of the garden or in the garden and giving that tree the designation of do not eat, then God goes the next step and not only gives man the capacity to sin, but gives man the opportunity to sin. To show you how distinct this is from God himself, to show you how much this quality about being man, how different that is from the Father, consider what comes to God when he takes the form of man. When God the Son becomes incarnate in man, the scripture says he could now experience temptation to sin. It required that step. It required that God take the form of man, this special creation of God that has the capacity to sin, Before God could even know what sin was, he had to take the form of man. But now, in the form of man, Christ could experience the opportunity to sin. But the question becomes, will he? Will he do what Adam did? And of course, the answer we know is, no, he didn't. Though he had opportunity to sin, yet he didn't. He did the opposite of what Adam did. That's why the Bible calls Christ the second Adam. It's because... In flesh, he was for a time able to choose sin and yet didn't follow after Adam's lead. And now he forms a a new model for the human race that by faith we can be reborn into this likeness of the new Adam and leave behind the old. That's the meaning of what he says, the Bible says when it talks about Jesus as a new Adam. Men, by the way, born today are not like the original Adam and nor are we like Christ. We come into the world born into a state of sin already. Already fallen. Already unable to obey God. We are, the Bible says, slaves to that state of disobedience that Adam himself established for us when he made the wrong choice. So we start the world already in sin. We didn't have to get to the point of Adam and make a choice for ourselves. We're already there. So the first point to understand as we try to answer the question, Why is this tree in the garden? The first point to understand is that men were given the capacity to choose and now the opportunity to choose sin. So the first answer to the question of why is there a tree in the garden? It makes available an opportunity to sin. Now, second thing to consider. I want you to consider that if we jump forward in time, and I don't just mean forward from when this occurred in Adam's day, but go forward even from today. Go forward from today into the future and go to the time in the eternal realm, the eternal state, in which we will all live with Christ in a resurrected body, ruling on this earth. We know that day is promised and and coming for those who believe. We are told that in that future day, we will no longer be able to sin. 
It's not just that we have been saved from sin. It means also we are now in a state in which we are not able to do what Adam is given the chance to do. You could put 50 trees in the garden and we still won't choose any of them if we're told not to. We will no longer be able to sin. So the state in which we are given, as that Adam is given, is a unique state that is never repeated for anyone ever. For us today, we're not in the situation Adam was in. We are already in sin. We don't. We never get the choice in the way Adam did. And once we are resurrected, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we receive an incorruptible body, cannot be corrupted. So our new perfect state is one unlike Adam as well. We'll never have the chance to make the choice Adam made. We will always be protected from it. Hallelujah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not trusting in my own ability to stand up to the same test that he got. And thankfully, I won't have to. We will no longer be able to rebel against God. By the way, this is an interesting point you may not have considered. That situation is very similar to what has happened with the angelic realm, with angels. After the angels were originally created, we're told in Ezekiel that they fell. In fact, we're told in several places in Scripture that a third of the angelic realm sided with Satan when he rebelled against God. And that third of the angelic realm are called the fallen angels or demons, we would call them. They are yet today still fallen and in rebellion. But the remaining two thirds have remained loyal and faithful And there is no sense anywhere in Scripture that those remaining two-thirds are at all in jeopardy of making the same mistake. It's as if the issue is settled. A third fell, two-thirds didn't, end of story. Paul, in 1 Timothy, you may not have noticed this, but in 1 Timothy 5.21, I won't read the verse, but you may look at it later, 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul describes those two-thirds that have never rebelled as the chosen or the elect Angels, indicating that even the angelic realm is subject to God's sovereignty in the question of who will be with him and who will not. And also, by the way, while God has made a provision for fallen men in the form of the gospel, Hebrews tells us in 2.16 this, For assuredly, Christ does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. So interestingly, though a third of the angels fell, there's no plan of redemption for them. God has no intent on rescuing any of the fallen angels. And yet for men, he did make that provision available. And therefore, we must conclude from those two facts, the fact that God has created man with the ability to sin and now has given him opportunity. And that secondly, in a future day, he removes both. There is only one conclusion then to draw from the fact that this tree has been placed in the garden when it was done in Adam's day. It was for the purpose of ensuring that man would fall by his own choice. It's an inevitable conclusion. It is so that the fall will happen. Obviously, God could have left the tree out of the garden. He does in the future. Obviously, he could have restricted Adam from having the will to disobey. He does in the future. So the very fact that he doesn't start it that way tells us that he had the intent that this would take place. I've even said to people, look, you could even put the tree in the garden and just make the branches 200 feet high. And he couldn't have reached the fruit. You see my point? There was obvious intent in the design and in the purpose of this tree. And the obvious intent is, 
I'm going to give Adam a test that I know he will fail. So the very fact that there was a tree and that it was available to Adam and that Adam had a choice and that he had the capacity to sin is evidence that this test was available for Adam's ultimate failure. By the way, this reminds us of the prodigal son. Do you remember in Luke chapter 16 as we covered that? Oh, that must have been, what, years ago, right? Literally. We looked at the prodigal son from this point of view, that the father in the story could be a picture of the father in heaven. And the prodigal son, this young, brash, you might say spoiled, impetuous child who decides he wants his father's inheritance early so he can go off and have fun in life. That child is a picture of Adam. Well, think of the story now from the point of view of these verses in Genesis. The father in that story, if you remember when I taught this before, I said the father in the story had a choice when that young man comes to him and demands the inheritance. The father could have denied the son's request. He could have said, no, get out of here. Who are you to think you can have my inheritance early? And he may have been able to, just by the nature of the times, of the culture, and so on, he could have demanded that the child remain in the home. Don't think like today. Don't think like the, the children of today who, if they ask something and they're told no, they storm off, run out, take off, do their own thing, disrespect their parents. <laughs> Not in this day. That child could have been put to death by the father. There was almost limitless power for the patriarch over a disobedient child, and the society would have agreed with it, not condemned it. So the son had no option except what the father allows for. And the father could have done nothing, could have said, no, I will not give you what you wanted, and even held him accountable for his request. But think about it from the father's point of view. What if he had done that? What kind of relationship does he have with his son under those circumstances? If the son remained in the home by force, there would have been the appearance of a relationship. I mean, he's there. He's living with the dad. But that's the extent of it. No love, no mutual desire, no no real relationship. It's all make-believe. It's all external. And so the opportunity to let the son leave was the only way the father could have the son truly in light of what his alternatives were. Without the opportunity to run away, without the opportunity to squander the money, without the opportunity for the child to reach bottom and then hopefully return, the son could never have known the father's mercy. He never would have understood his father's forgiveness. He never would have seen grace. Those, those concepts would have been meaningless to a child who was forced to stay behind in the home against his own will. Now, there's a risk in that. The risk is if I let them go, some don't come back. From God's point of view, the risk is the disobedience of Adam means some are lost. Yes. But if Adam never falls, then none are gained. Not truly. That is what God has positioned in the way He has created this garden. He has positioned the opportunity for man to experience sin If he chooses. And in the experiencing of sin, he will fall. And in the fall, he will be under judgment. But in the rescue that God has planned, there will be opportunity for grace and mercy and forgiveness and true love in the end. It's either that or there's no relationship. Nothing true. Now, remember back in chapter one, I want you to ask yourself this. Is this really what God wanted to see happen? Or are we really just looking at a true fork in the road that really it was up to Adam if he had never sinned it could have been just fine 
Or is it really God intended that there only be one track, that that there would be a fall? Well, remember back to chapter 1, when we looked at the design of all the creation, remember? And we noticed that some of the things God put in the design of this world were elements that you would only have if the world was going to have sin. Remember? There was both light and dark. Because God knew there would be sin and and darkness is a picture of sin. But then again, when the new heavens and new earth are going to be available to us in the future, there is no dark in that new heaven and earth. He takes it away because there's no sin. And what about the sea, remember? The world we live in now has a sea because the Bible uses the sea as a picture of the depths of hell. The dark, foreboding, endless depths of hell. Which is why in the new heavens and new earth there's no sea. Because again, there's no sin, there's no judgment, therefore there's no hell. How about the sun and the moon? The sun and the moon today, we're told, exist to reflect light onto the earth. But in the new heavens and new earth, there is no longer a sun or moon. The light of the world comes from God Himself. You see, God knew in this world, after the fall, He couldn't fellowship with men. He couldn't tabernacle with men. He can't be present in the presence of sin without His character, His nature, His perfection requiring that He judge it. As it presents itself to Him, He must judge it. So in mercy, He distances Himself from this world, at least for the time, as a means of foregoing, of of putting off the judgment that has to come, giving opportunity, giving time for the gospel to reach men. And so the world needs a light other than from him in the short term. That's the sun. But when he's here to tabernacle with men in a sinless world, he doesn't need that sun anymore. He's light. He provides our light. The point, of course, is clearly as God was making the world back in chapter one, he made it knowing where he was going. Into a world in which sin was a part of that world. He knew it was coming and not just that he could predict it. He intended that the world would be ready for it. Then he put a tree in the garden which became the opportunity for it. So, if that's true, then it really begs a couple of other questions that I know are probably in your mind. One of them is, why does God permit, maybe even invite, Adam's sin? That's not fully reconciled, is it? Is that really the good, loving thing to do? Well, God's purpose in the creation, going back to just step one, His reason for creation itself, is so that he has an opportunity to express his nature, his character, his his personality, if you will, into that creation and have it know him fully and worship him for who he is. You could make a comparison, I guess, to a marriage. The, The most full, rewarding, satisfying marriage relationship is one in which both Partners know each other so well, so fully, that they know the best and the worst and the good and the bad, and they have a full appreciation, a full abiding in that other person in their relationship. If there's any part of them that they've held back that's not known, that's secret, then there's something missing. There's still some kind of relationship, but it's not the full relationship. They don't know each other fully. There's not the completeness of it available. So before God could be fully known by the creation that he's made and thereby worshipped for who he is, then he has to have an opportunity for the creation to see him in his full personality. He has to reveal himself fully. That makes sense, right? If there was some part of who God was 
that was not being shown into this creation, that part of himself would be secret to the creation. They wouldn't know it, and therefore they couldn't worship him for it. They couldn't appreciate it. And if the purpose of the creation is so that God can be known fully and be worshipped for who he is, then he has to show himself fully. While we might know God's love and his compassion and his provision or his wisdom without the presence of sin, sin does not have to exist for me to know love. Sin doesn't have to exist for me to know God's wisdom or to me, for me to know his power or his might or his compassion, right? Or his provision. But how would I know God's wrath if there wasn't sin? How would I know God's judgment as the perfect judge? How would I know what perfect judgment even looks like? How would I even know what the word is if there was nothing that needed judging? How would I know what mercy is? How do you know what forgiveness is if you haven't done something wrong? How do you know what grace is if you don't need it? You see, if the world was without sin, there's a whole side of God, maybe 50% of what it means to be God, totally out of the conversation. We'd know him for who he is on one half, but we wouldn't know the other half. And I understand that you're probably asking yourself, well, why would I want to know that half? Right? I don't want to know judgment. I don't want to, mur- I don't want to know uh, a wrath. I don't want to know those things. But, yeah, but, but do you know God better because you know he's a God of mercy and forgiveness and grace? Without the possibility of Adam knowing sin, mankind, creation, couldn't hope to understand God's full nature and character. It goes hand in hand. And if God is the author of all things, and if this is his world, he is the sovereign, he can do with it what he wants, and he has said the world exists to know me and worship me, then he must introduce something that brings about that other side of his personality. But yet he can't, he cannot begin it. He cannot author it. He is precluded. His own nature does not allow him to to step into the world of sin and start it. Think about the challenge that is for God. God says the three-person Godhead says to themselves, let us make man in our image. What I think they're saying, based on what we understand out of Scripture, is let us create something so close to us and yet more than us in the sense that it can go where we cannot. And by allowing that to happen, a side of who we are is made available that is otherwise unknowable. It's the master plan of master plans. And though I know for us at times we would question that logic because it seems unloving to permit a bad thing to happen, we have to step back from that and understand nothing exists apart from God's plan. There's no plan B. There's, There's no other way it can be except that God would have what He wishes for His purpose according to His will. And if it necessitated sin becoming a reality so that we would know the grace that has been made ours, so be it. That's God's will. That is the meaning of what it is to be God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now listen, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us 
to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God the Father chose us in Christ before he started the creation process of Genesis 1. Before the creation story began, he already had a plan of redeeming men from sin, and it included knowing who he would redeem. Why did he do this? Verse 4 says, because of his love, and then verse 6 says, so that it would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. No sin, no grace. No redemption, no grace. And no grace, no praise for that grace. Who was it that did this creation process? The, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that, and Colossians chapter 1 that all that exists was made through Christ. He was the author of all things. So think about what that means. The one who was going to have to die to redeem men, is the same one who chose to create the world in the first place with an expectation that sin would arrive. I mean, would you have done that? Would you have been the author of a plan that led to your own death on a cross? You see, that's the miracle of what God did. It wasn't merely that he created it and then somehow, oops, it all went wrong and now what are we going to do? Well, I guess I'll have to go to death on the cross. Ooh, wish I'd seen that coming. No, Scripture says he purposed it would it come. That was the whole point. How do you have praise to the glory of His grace unless you have a plan that necessitates grace? <laughs> I mean, it's mind-blowing when you consider what God was willing to do. And not out of some necessity because of a reaction to us, but out of a plan in the beginning to make it so. And that tree had to be in the middle of the garden or none of the rest of it happens. Now, am I suggesting here that the tree is somehow a big trap? It's, it's like entrapment for, for Adam. He's a helpless victim of the whole plan. Far from it. Look at verses 16 and 17 again, which I know it's been a while since I read them. God warns Adam in no uncertain terms, do not eat. There's no ambiguity about this. He didn't say, hey, if you want to eat, you might, but don't do it if you know what's better for you. know, he doesn't play with it. He says, do not eat. There is no subterfuge here. There is no attempt to bait Adam. Adam fell because he chose to sin, because he chose to disobey that word. Pure and simple. But yet, because he had the ability to do that, it was an inevitability. Think about it. What if Adam had done the right thing? Let's say Adam was the perfect human being forever. Well, then you get Cain. Is Cain going to last? Or maybe it's not Cain. Maybe he does well too. Maybe it goes on for years and years and years. What about maybe Abraham sins? Sooner or later, maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. Sooner or later, somebody goes up to that tree and disobeys. Isn't it probably grace in the fact that it starts with the first guy and it doesn't get complicated so that some are okay and some are not? God ensured that from the very beginning, the plan would take hold rather than in some later day when it would all be a mess. Lastly, in examining 16 and 17, we need to consider that this tree came with a promise. Adam received God's word. That's what 16 and 17 represent. God's word to Adam. He doesn't have the Bible. He doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't have the Old Testament. He has this. It's God's word in Adam's day. And in God's word, he received a promise. Now, it's not worded like you would think most promises. We think of a promise in the positive sense. 
I promise to give you something. I promise to do something for you. This is a promise, though it's not in the positive, it's in the negative. The promise was that should Adam choose to eat from this tree, which he has been told not to eat from, then he will surely die. That's the promise. Now, when God says to Adam, Adam, you will surely die, what does that mean? Well, we know the Bible talks of two deaths, generally speaking. First, there is the obvious one, physical death, the body. Our physical body will cease to exist at some point, whether by death or by the rapture, and it will stop functioning and go back to dust. We call that death. But the Bible also talks about a spiritual death. It talks about a state of existence in which our physical body is alive, but our spirit is corrupted by sin. Let me just read you one more passage out of Ephesians to show you what we're talking about. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says to the church, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan, of course, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were, by our nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds believers that prior to our faith in Christ, we were dead, there's that word, dead in our sin. This state of deadness, Paul says, is characterized by a separation from God, our inability to know God or to have fellowship with God. And it is also an inability to ever seek God truly. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks after God, no, not one. Even the world that thinks they're seeking after God, they're not, not in a true sense. Spiritually, when you are dead, you are unable to know God, to follow Him, to seek after Him. You are separated from God. That is why Paul says that while we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. Did you notice who the actor is? We didn't make ourselves alive. God made us alive in Christ. God did the work to bring us back into a spiritual life where now we can know and we can follow God. So notice that there are two states of being. Dead in sin, Paul says we were formerly like the world, dead in sin, or alive in Christ. Now he says God has made you alive in Christ. So those are two different forms of spiritual being in the world. But did you also notice they both happened while we had a living, physical body? So the earlier state, I was walking around just as much physically alive as I am now. But I was dead spiritually. Having come to faith in Christ, I am made alive spiritually by God. My body didn't change. In fact, my body's getting worse. I turned 45 this week. It's getting worse by the day. Getting closer to death, not, not further from it. But spiritually, new life has already come. That's why we Christians say born again. We're talking about the spiritual change that comes with faith. God promised Adam that in the day he ate of this tree, he would surely die. But if you've read ahead in the book of Genesis, you know that Adam lives 930 years after he eats from this tree. So we know that when God says you will surely die, 
The death that he's promising in verse 17 cannot be physical death. His word said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. In that same day. But he lives 930 years, so it can't be physical. It must be spiritual. That's the only other one left. So Adam had a spiritual death take place when he disobeyed. So now let's consider the relationship between Adam's spiritual death and our spiritual renewal by faith. In verses 16 and 17, God's word gave Adam a promise. Adam had to believe in God's word, in the promise concerning the tree, or else he would experience spiritual death. The promise was that spiritual death would be the consequence for eating the fruit. But there was nothing to prove that was true, was there? How would Adam know that the truth was there? How would he know that he could believe that promise? What would have told him that God's word was trustworthy? The fruit looked the same. In fact, it looked good to eat. The woman says later in chapter 3, it looks delightful. The tree probably looked like any other tree. All Adam had was God's word, a promise that he had to believe. He either took it on faith or he rejected it. That's what Adam had. And remember, Adam has no understanding of evil. So how could he have had any understanding of what death meant? It must have been like gobbledygook to him. Do not eat of that tree or if you do, in the day you shall you eat of it, you shall surely... Sounds bad, but I'm not sure what that is. That's literally how Adam must have perceived what he just heard. What does die mean? What die? Die? Is it a bad thing? I'm not sure. But what he did hear was, do not. So if you're willing to accept God's word on its face, without all the explanations, without all the fancy understanding and the doctoral degrees and so on, if you just say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, then you would not eat of that fruit and you would live forever. Makes sense, right? Instead, Adam failed to believe in the promise, and so Adam died. And because of his sinful choice, it spread to the rest of men, just like Paul says in Romans 5.12. Now look at how that relates to you and I today, and look at the wisdom of God. The Bible says that salvation is made possible for the descendants of Adam by grace through faith in Christ. Now have you ever wondered why God chose this method to save us? It could have been anything. He could have had Christ die on the cross because he needs the sacrifice to pay for our sin. That much would have to be the same. But instead of faith in Christ, maybe he says you've got to stay on your head for 20 minutes. Maybe he says you've got to run a, a four-minute mile. In other words, whatever God said was required would be what was required. But he said, no, 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 I want you to believe in a promise. I want you to believe in this promise. I want you to believe that because Christ's death pays all that is necessary to cover your sin. Therefore, you can rest or trust in that work and not in your own. And if you believe that, if you trust in that work and you accept it in place of your own attempts to make God happy, he will count all of Christ's righteousness as yours. And you will suddenly and instantly become 100% righteous before God, not on your own basis, but on the basis of Christ's work. And he will save you strictly on that faith and faith alone. That's your promise. Now, how do you prove that? Gee, you know what? It's just like Adam. You can't. There's no way to prove that. I can show you the words. But unless you're willing to accept God's word on its face, you will suffer eternal death. But if you are willing to accept God's word on its face, you have the opportunity of eternal life. It is my contention 
that God made this and only this way available for salvation because it directly reverses the mistake of Adam. It is the undoing of the first sin. And each of us, though we are not the one who made the mistake in the garden, we inherit the culpability. We inherit the sinful nature. So it stands now for each of us to have that same moment that Adam had. We don't have a tree. We have a different promise. But we have God's word with a promise made available. No proof. Do you believe or do you not? Receive his word as Adam did not. Receive the eternal life that Adam forfeited. What wisdom in that? What a remarkable way of bringing the two together so that the solution is also the opposite of the problem. Each of us has that same opportunity. Each of us by faith can receive that same promise. But unlike Adam, we are not expected to hold on to that promise by our own power. God does all the work of salvation. He provides a sacrifice for our sin. He gives us the faith to believe according to Scripture. And then He gives us His Spirit after we believe so that we can never retreat from that faith. We can never suffer loss again. We can never make the mistake that Adam made. He holds us to Himself in a new relationship. Let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the wisdom of Your plan of salvation. And thank You, Father, for an opportunity to know You fully. To know a God that is both just and merciful. A God who is both angry and intolerant of sin. And long-lasting in His patience, Father. And long-suffering and forgiving. Thank You, Father, for the church universal and for this small fellowship amongst many. For we preach your word and we hear your promises and I pray, Father, we will keep them and have faith in them. And may we come back next week and continue in this study so that we may hear more of them. Send us away from here, Father, with a renewed desire to serve others in your word and testify to your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.